That's good. We're continuing to look at uh, ministry partnership stories. For those of you that haven't been around lately, we did a baptism service on February 7th and uh, 12 uh, individuals from our church family were baptized and we had another 13 ministry partners that, uh, so we just thought, well, you know, there's only so much time in a day. So we thought we'd show you all the ministry partner uh, stories in the coming weeks. That'll lead us all the way to Palm Sunday. Easter Sunday, we plan on doing more baptisms. So we just keep going on. So if you would like to get baptized, by the way, or become a ministry partner, you can uh, uh, grab a form at the Welcome Center or hop online and fill out the form there. It's very exciting. In fact, this weekend has been quite exciting. A lot's been going on yesterday morning. For those of you watching an Agassi a week later uh, on a delay, um, this all happened last week for you. But uh, yesterday here in this space and throughout the building, we had our Embracing Adoption Seminar that we put on for those looking at adoption, those who have adopted, those looking at fostering. And we had nearly 100 people come. And it was an amazing time. Some really great speakers did some good equipping. There was some good support, um, good resourcing for those interested in adopting. This is really something that we've just noticed God doing among us. We have many families that have adopted. And Pastor Chris and I especially, just seemed like many conversations we were having with young families, they seemed to be talking about the process of adoption they were in. And we thought, wow, God's really doing something here. So um, clearly he is. So we were able to host this and a number of people from the community in addition to our own church, came to that. Last night, um, some families from within our church put on a fundraiser. They are uh, sponsoring a refugee family. Uh, They are sponsoring a family to come through MCC. Um, And so uh, they put a fundraiser on uh, last night in this space and raised over $11,000 towards that cause. So um, God is clearly working in and through uh, the ministry of Central, through the people of it, and I praise God for that. Here we are this morning, and then, of course, tonight we have our AGM. So I'm looking forward to my, my weekend, Monday and Tuesday. It's going to be great. Um, uh, as you turn your Bibles to John chapter 5, we're going to conclude uh, that chapter, uh, looking at verses 31 through 47. Um, if you need a Bible, you can grab one at the Welcome Center. It's our gift to you. If you don't own one, you can hop on your app and look that way, too. As you turn there, though, I'm about to read it, and you'll notice that there's 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 kind of a kind of a court theme going on here, and uh, you may have noticed that the O.J. Simpson trial, probably the most famous court trial in recent history, uh, has kind of come into uh, the forefront uh, of public opinion yet again because there's a a TV miniseries going on right now, and so everyone's talking about O.J. yet again. But perhaps maybe you... you, um, aren't seeing that, but it doesn't matter. There's so many shows, so many movies where uh, there's the courtroom scenes, right? And, and so there's a little bit of that flavor in the text this morning. So I'm going to use all of the court jargon I, I know from Perry Mason, and, uh, and we're, I'm, I'm going to sprinkle it in. Okay? May I approach the bench? All right, I don't know. It, I'm going to run out really quickly, I'll be honest with you, but... Well, let's read the text, and then, and then you'll have a little bit of context of what on earth I'm talking about. John 5, starting in verse 31. If I alone, Jesus says, bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking about God the Father there. Now he's going to jump to John the Baptist. You sent to John. 
And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is one of those passages, it happens often, but one of those passages that I read, I started reading this a couple weeks ago more in a more focused way, preparing for this. And um, very early this morning, I thought to myself, I would love another 17 weeks with this text before I preach it. It is so rich, so full. And yet uh, we're going to give ourselves to really, I, I think what can clearly be seen is the, the, the real heart, the real meat of this text. And that we do not want to miss. So let's pray and then we will dive into it. God, thank you for your word. Even as we read this text this morning, what we see is that um, well, we see who you are, and we see the, the purpose of Scripture. So God, I pray that as we spend some time in these verses this morning, that you would oh, enliven our hearts to who you are. And God, that the truth of your word would sink down deep into our hearts as you impress it by your Holy Spirit. So may we hear well. And God, we rely on you to do some real heart work on us this morning. Thank you for this time together to give ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were to just open your Bible to John chapter 5 and read verse 31, what would you think? Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What in the world is Jesus saying here? Jesus, should we not believe Jesus? Well, if we were to look at this one particular verse and, and not really take into, the, into context everything else that Scripture says about Jesus, well, we might be confused about this verse. But clearly we can see, in fact, John chapter 8, verse 13, absolutely says that we can trust the testimony of Jesus. What this is actually saying is that if he was only speaking on his own accord, it would be false in really a, a cultural sense. So Jesus' hearers would be thinking 
uh, of the law that governed them, and they would be thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Here's what it says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, so, so Jesus is really talking to them in, in their setting and saying, look, what's my word? Well, we know Jesus' word is trustworthy, but he's talking to a group who aren't believing him, and he's saying, well, don't take it from me. You demand at least two witnesses, three witnesses for some sort of a charge to be brought. Well, Jesus is about to bring four. But before he does that, he's also going to give some indictments on the people. So Jesus is really, um, if you've watched the datelines, you understand how this works, is it's really helpful when you're being accused of something to have an alibi. It's even better to have two or three, right? It's, it, you can't just say, I wasn't there. It's not enough. But if somebody else can say, yeah, I was with them at this time in this other town. There was no possible way, right? That's very helpful. An alibi, an investigation. So Jesus, like any attorney building his case, is about to call his witnesses. And what we will discover, though, is his hearer's refusal to acknowledge the evidence brought before them. So the first thing we want to do is we want to look at the indictments that Jesus brings against his hearers. Um, We'll show the text on the screen, and as we go, each indictment will appear bold on the screen. We'll start in verse 38 and work our way down to verse 44. In verse 38 it says, You do not have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is indicting them and saying, You don't have God's word in you goes on to say at the end of verse 38, you don't believe me. The reason you don't have God's word in you is you don't believe the one that it's all pointing to. You don't believe me. It goes on in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, another indictment, that you may have life. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Another indictment. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And then verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It's a rhetorical question. He's ultimately saying you cannot believe. So Jesus, in a few short verses, says you don't have God's word in you. You don't believe me. He reiterates that they don't believe him in verse 46. Again, in verse 40, you refuse to come to me. You don't have the love of God in you. You you don't receive me. And lastly, you cannot believe me. For you're seeking glory from others, not glory from God. Now there's a situation going on in the States I find really interesting. A prof at Wheaton College in the States um, began to wear a hijab in um, solidarity with Muslims and some of the persecution Muslims were experiencing, particularly in the States. But along with that, she made a statement which has kind of caught fire, and it's been this fresh debate yet again, where she made a statement that said, um, we worship the same God, uh, referring to Muslims. We worship the same God. 
And she wore the hijab to have solidarity with them. It was a compassionate gesture. But it, it sparked the debate yet again. Do we worship the same God? Wheaton's a Christian college. Do Jews and Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Let me read verse 37. Listen closely. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Why is that? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Goes on, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's those same scriptures that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. goes on to say in verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Jesus is saying here very pointedly, very bluntly, you don't believe God, you don't know God, and you don't love God because you reject me. Are we talking about the same God? Do we worship the same God? This is delicate. We are to be winsome. We are to be kind. We are to be compelling. We are to woo, not win a debate. But that discussion, Jesus wants to put to rest because he's saying so clearly, look, you search the scriptures, and we share two-thirds of the scriptures with, right, with with Muslims and with with Jews, certainly. But the other third reveals Jesus and informs us of how to interpret the first two-thirds. See, the litmus test about whether you believe, know, and love God is Jesus. Belief in the one whom God the Father has sent. And God is revealing himself and the way of salvation through Jesus. And it's for all who believe in the crucified, risen Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, that truly paints the picture of who God is. See, to deny God the Son is not to know God the Father. So all that this does is make us want to be compelling witnesses to those who, who still yet need to encounter Jesus. Not because we think our faith is better, not because we think, right, one thing, because Jesus makes it clear, and we're going to continue to look at it, that all of the scriptures culminate in Christ's redemptive work. And through that, we interpret everything from cover to cover. But look at these indictments again. You don't have God's word in you. You don't believe me. You refuse to come to me. You don't have the love of God in you. You don't receive me. You cannot believe me. Verse 44 is an interesting one that we ought to look closely at for ourselves. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's seeking man's approval not God's approval, seeking glory from others rather than glory from God. This isn't a Jewish issue or a Muslim issue. This is a human being issue. This is a rebellious sinner issue. This is for all of us to hear. 
No one is exempt. Jesus is making an indictment here that says, you can't believe me when you're seeking glory from others and not glory from God. See, living for the glory of others rather than the glory of God, seeking approval from others, really takes our focus on living for God's glory and makes it living for man's. And this, this starts really young for us. Um, when I was in elementary school, like midway through, um, I remember being at school, after school one day, and all the other kids had gone home. It didn't seem like anybody else was on the school grounds, and we were kind of down this hill in kind of the bottom field of my elementary school. No one else was around. And I had this really cool friend, and, and he, he, I remember we were, we were down in the field, and he swore. And I was like, what? We don't, we don't know those. I don't know those words. And, uh, and he was telling me to swear. And he's like, do it, right? Do it. This starts really early. Well, I really wanted his approval. So I remember, like, I don't think I'd ever sworn in my life, right? There's some farmers in here. They, they use some of these words a lot. They say, oh, you know, it's farm terminology. <laughs> Well, when it's aimed at your kids and not the field, I don't think it counts, but, you know, whatever. All right. Um, so I just remember yelling this, this curse word. didn't seem like anybody was around for the approval of my friend. Like, I just yelled it. And then we go up the hill, and there's, like, a mom with her young child there just looking at me, shaking her head, <laughs> earmuffing her daughter, you know. You punk kids. It doesn't start, right? My, my son already knows the, the kinds of things that are cool, and he's telling us what he wants us to buy him. And I'm like, no, you will have the no-name brand shoes, my son. That's what I got. Builds character. Right? It's all, it's all of those pieces, right? A lot of dark days, yeah. Um, but it, it's all of that. It just keeps going. And, and you know what? Before we know it, we're grown, and we're still playing the game. We're putting our energies, our thoughts, our time, our resources. We're living our lives for the approval of others. Like if you're being really honest here for a moment, do you spend more effort, more resources, more of your thought life on a life that brings glory and receives glory from God or approval from others? What Jesus is saying, if you give yourself over to seeking approval, seeking glory from those around you, you can't know God. Because he's not your aim. He's not your joy. You don't know him in a way that satisfies. You keep seeking it, ground level. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from God? You can't. You, you love glory from others, not the glory of God. And as long as that misplaced glory-seeking controls us, we will not be able to truly believe. But there's an encouraging word. Jesus brings this indictment not to just make people feel miserable. He doesn't bring this indictment just to make you feel hopeless. He's he's. he's teaching another way. That's the grand point, is that there's more to it. There's more to the story. Jesus is indicting them, but saying, find your hope in God. Find your glory in God. Find your approval from God. See, what happens when we truly encounter Jesus is that we discover that he satisfies. Right? Jesus offers a living water, and once you taste it and are satisfied, the approval from others just doesn't matter as much. It's just like temporary drinking water. You get thirsty again real quick. Oh, it doesn't satisfy. 
But when I drink from the living water of Jesus Christ, my thirst is quenched and I'm satisfied. And as you find your satisfaction in Jesus, it breaks our cravings for human glory and we're free. But as long as we're just seeking it from others, it, it, it hinders the relationship with God. So Jesus is compelling us to find glory in Jesus. So there, look, there are the indictments that Jesus makes. And he's, he, he, he's now going to make a really compelling case for, for really what the Gospel of John is trying to say. It's, it's his grand point. We'll look at it a lot. We'll look at it more and more closely later. But Jesus is the Son of God, and that's what he's declaring. And he's about to call four witnesses to make that point. So listen to them closely. Jesus is building a case, building an argument here. And his first witness is John the Baptist. I'm going to show you a screen here with part of the passage again, and the four witnesses will become bold in the text. It says in verse 33, You sent to John, that's John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer, and he, was, he, he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist has borne witness to me, Jesus said. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may, may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm, I'm making a case for my own deity here. So, so the witness of a man is meh, but look, it's just my first witness. <laughs> but, but I'll mention the man, even though I'm making a case for 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 deity, what's one man's word about me being God in, in, in essence? And yet, he said, you enjoyed the glow of his light for a while. He was a lamp, I should say. Jesus is the light. John sort of reflects it in a lamp kind of way for a small time. And, and you enjoyed that light, Jesus is saying. Crowds gather. We talked about this in John chapter 1, John chapter 2. When Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist was there, John the Baptist was the famous guy. Jesus wasn't. John the Baptist gathered the crowds. Jesus didn't yet. And so John was a big deal. People would come into the wilderness to be baptized by John as he was preparing the way for the Lord. But John the Baptist came into the world to bear witness to the true light. That's what chapter 1 verse 7 says. Later on in chapter 1, it says that we see that he bore witness to the priests and the Levites, right? The religious leaders in Jerusalem. And John also publicly identified as Jesus, identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. Spirit anointed, Son of God. And people were enamored with John. And so John's saying, or Jesus is saying, John the Baptist bore witness about me. But he's going to build his case. Secondly, he refers to the works that he has been doing. The testimony that I give is greater than that of John. The testimony that I give is greater than that of John. Here's even greater evidence. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John calls them signs. Um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of similarities to them. They, they, they each have their own lens, but a lot of similarities. They're called the Synoptics. They have a lot in common. The, the Gospel of John is written quite differently, and John centers, centers it around seven signs of Jesus that he reveals in the Gospel. These signs really are just that. They're signs. They're, they're pointers 
And what do they point to? Well, the miracles reveal God. So Jesus heals. Jesus gives sight. Jesus helps someone walk again. Jesus multiplies food. Jesus brings someone from death to life. It reveals something. They're pointers. And what do they point to? Jesus is the sustainer and the giver of life. Who can do that? Only God can do that. Look, we can have tricks. We can, we can kind of learn some magic, I guess, or right sleight of hand. But Jesus has these miraculous signs that reveal who he is. The sustainer and giver of life. John 10.37 puts it this way. If I'm not doing the works of my Father then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What these signs reveal is that I and the Father are one. That's precisely how um, the verse preceding our text this morning stated in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, God the Father. Jesus is submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus and the Father are unified. They are one. And these signs that Jesus is doing that no person can do reveal God. Thirdly, Jesus points to his third witness, his greatest witness, God the Father. And the Father, verse 37, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. His third witness is his Father. Jesus calls his miraculous signs that reveal God and God the Father himself as witnesses. God the Father and Son are in perfect unity. And there are some beautiful um, pictures of this and God's approval and God's witness of the Son. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 17 are a couple examples of that. Uh, Jesus' baptism in the transfiguration. God the Father's voice is audibly heard and he says the same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In John, uh, Matthew chapter 17, he adds, listen to him. See, human witness about deity isn't enough. But the works that Jesus was doing, his approval from God the Father, and now... The final witness he calls are the scriptures themselves. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures, Jesus says to his hearers, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness about me. They make a case for Jesus being the Son of God. It goes down in verse 46. It goes on. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he wrote of me, Jesus says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? His writings in the Old Testament scriptures reveal, bear witness to Jesus. Now when Jesus is talking about the scriptures, he's talking about what we know of as the Old Testament. These are the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Another word for testament is covenant. So Old Covenant, Old Testament. 
Jesus is referring to those things. And Jesus' hearers knew the word, right? Jesus even says, you search the scriptures. You're in the scriptures. But they miss Jesus in them. Now before we get too far along those lines, let me just say, we can do that too. We can miss Jesus. Christian Smith wrote a a popular book a few years back. Really, um, he coined a term that's getting used quite a bit now for really a generation that was raised in the church not that long ago. um, That really... We might use another term, we might call them nominal Christians. They, they might come to church or they might con- check off the Christian box, but there doesn't seem to be fruit, there doesn't seem to be life. I don't think that they even know how to connect the dots. Look, if that's you, thank you for being here. If you're just connecting the dots, welcome. We want to help you do that. But, but what Christian Smith is saying in this book is he's, he's talking about a certain culture and a certain generation that's been brought up that's missing the point He dubs this as moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is actually what Martin was referring to in the story that we watched. It's the belief that God wants his creatures to behave. That's moralistic. What God wants is he wants his creatures to behave. That's the moralistic part. What what he also found in his study and wrote in the book about moralistic therapeutic deism is that the belief that God wants his creatures to behave, but God also wants his creatures to feel good about themselves. There's therapeutic. So what they discovered was, was really a generation of what are now young adults who thought they were supposed to behave themselves, but that God wanted them to feel good about themselves. And thirdly, that God exists but is not really involved in individual lives. It wasn't this vibrant, they weren't experiencing answers to prayers that invigorated their faith. It was sort of, it was impractical. God is distant, he exists, but he's not really involved in everyday lives of people, certainly not me. So it's this moralistic, therapeutic deism. The problem is they never, and Christian Smith points to this, they have never been taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went to Sunday school and they learned moralism. Right? They learned the Ten Commandments and you are to keep those. And then they learned stories about like David and Goliath. But then rather than discover Jesus in that story, the questions asked, what are the giants in your life that you can defeat? It's therapeutic. Because God wants to do that for you. In both instances, the gospel is not proclaimed. And what it does is it raises up a generation of moralistic, therapeutic deists. They think God wants me to behave. But he also wants me to be me, however I am, and he wants me to be happy in it. And he's not really involved in life. The problem is that it's void of gospel teaching. That the law actually reveals we can never do it perfectly, hence we need Jesus. Enter the gospel. It's not just up to you to do right. Jesus did better, and you can gain his righteousness by giving your life to Jesus. That's what we do with the law. It reveals we aren't good enough, hence we need Jesus. And then when it comes to David and Goliath, we recognize that Jesus conquered an even greater giant in Satan, and that by doing that, he defeats sin and death. It's just these storylines always point back to Jesus. But what's happened is, in a lot of instances, in a lot of circumstances, in a lot of environments, whether it's home or at the church or Christian school or whatever, 
oftentimes it's been void of the gospel. So people have just been moralistic, therapeutic deists. Wherever there is teaching or preaching that's void of the gospel, it's one or all three of those things, moralizing, therapeutic, and about a God who isn't really present in your life. But let me tell you, we believe the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come, and his name's Jesus. And through his birth, life, death, and resurrection has inaugurated a new covenant. That's where we get our New Testament. And yet the New Testament doesn't void the Old Testament. Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5 and says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish Old Covenant. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to more clearly help you realize all that happens in Jesus. And so we are a new covenant people, but that doesn't mean we don't share the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we don't preach the Old Testament. Look, we could start preaching right now the Old Testament for years, not touch the New Testament in terms of preaching it, and we could be preaching Jesus and the gospel week after week. Do you realize that? Because the, the New Testament informs, helps us see all the fulfillments, all of the pointers, all of the signs that they were culminating into Jesus and that redemption and that hope. So we believe Jesus. But look, we can miss Jesus in the Old Testament as Christians because we don't know what to do with it. You ever felt that way? If you're on a Bible reading plan right now, you're probably in like Leviticus numbers and it's freaking you out. Albert Moeller said this about the Old Testament. Too many Christians and even pastors and preachers, to many Christians and even pastors and preachers, the Old Testament is a foreign book. They do things differently there. And they certainly do. Arks and animals in a menagerie afloat, dead animals and hewn bullocks, rams in thickets, slavery in Egypt, burning bushes, staffs that turn into snakes, bronze serpents, manna in the morning, pillars of fire and columns of smoke, convoluted history of conquests of kings, intrigue, adultery, murder, incest, a preoccupation with bodily fluids, bears who eat boys, boys who kill giants, prophets who taunt idolaters, prophets who throw fits, prophets who sit at gates and weep, poetry that reads like praise, poetry that reads like existentialist philosophy, Persian writing on walls, foreign kings who roam like wild beasts, a prostitute who hides spies, spies who lose heart, women who summon courage, donkeys that talk, a strong man who commits suicide, stuttering leaders, naked patriarchs, majestic praise, predictive prophecy, lamentation, law, statutes, ordinances, in all of its glory. And all of it reveals Christ. Every bit of it. They do things differently there, and that's the point. These things all anticipate Christ. They look forward to Christ and make us yearn for Christ. They should help us to recognize the Christ. For as it says in our text, John 5:39, it is they that bear witness about me. That is the grand point of this passage, and that is the grand point of the Bible. Have you met Jesus in it? The whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is ultimately about Jesus. Do not think, verse 45, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Now, these are a people who loved Moses. These are a people who read Moses. These are people who looked to Moses. 
But again, Hebrews chapter 3 looks back on all of this and says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, Moses is credited with writing the Pentateuch and was an important and central figure in the Old Testament, but he was a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son. Moses put his hope in Jesus, and yet we see in the text that the people have put their hope in Moses. The people put their hope in Moses and his writings, but we see that Moses had put his hope in Jesus. He was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, that were to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says, not only do you not believe me, you don't actually believe Moses, on whom you've set your hope, because he wrote of me. I'm the point, and you're missing it. Moses wrote of me, and you're not recognizing it. What they needed to understand, his hearers, and what we need to understand is that Jesus is our hope. Our hope rests in Jesus, not our great morals. Our hope rests in Jesus, not our Bible knowledge. Our hope rests in Jesus, not our own merits. Our hope rests in Jesus. For what is the primary purpose of the Bible? Its primary purpose is to point people to Jesus. Does it reveal history? Does it communicate God's character? Does it reveal our sinful human nature? Absolutely. But its primary purpose is to point people to Jesus. Has the Bible done that for you? Has the Bible pointed you to Jesus? When you study the scriptures, are you more enamored with your linguistical skills than you are with who's revealed in the text? Do you study it like crazy and walk away hard-hearted? Has the Bible done that for you? Revealed Jesus as our only hope, for that is its primary purpose. Uh, John Stott wrote in a book about uh, signposts and the scripture as a signpost. He tells a story and says, suppose that you and your family are determined to go on a picnic. You pick your spot and start driving toward it. And at last, you come to a sign that contains the name of the picnic grounds. What do you do now? Do you immediately stop the car and get out and have your picnic around the signpost? Of course not. You follow the signs of the grounds themselves and have your picnic there. In the same way, God gave the scriptures so that you and I, sinners that we are, might come to Christ in whom we have a true knowledge of the Father. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. The Bible is one big story where everything points to Jesus. Its primary purpose is to point people to Jesus. All of Scripture bears witness about Jesus. And the way that the Bible leads to eternal life is by leading people to encounter Jesus in it. He says you search the Scriptures because you think you find life in that alone, but they reveal me and life is found in me. So, we've looked at 
the indictments. We've looked at the witnesses. Let's get to the verdict, shall we? I hope there's not a hung jury. I don't know. I have no more statements. I should have written a ton down. I could have really sprinkled them through. <coughs> I'm spent. All right. Sustained. Here we go. The verdict. First, the Bible bears witness to Jesus. I want to jump to a passage that's very similar to the one we've been looking at this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. Here's the context for what I'm about to read. Jesus has been crucified, and his disciples are sad. They're visibly sad, it says in the text. And, and they're walking down a road, and a man comes along, and they start to tell this man that they don't recognize who is Jesus. Um, yeah, we thought he was the Messiah, but he died. By then, um, his tomb's empty, and his body's probably been stolen, but some say that maybe he's been raised to life, but they're visibly sad. That's the context, and here's what happens next. Jesus says to them, they don't recognize who he is. These are his disciples. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He took the Old Testament and revealed Christ. I was telling Pastor Eldon a couple weeks ago, I'm like, man, if I could just be like a fly, like if I could just get in on a scene, right? I'd just love to be walking with them, no Aramaic, which would be helpful as well, and just hear Jesus from Moses and all the prophets revealing how it's all him. Well, a guy can dream. But you know what? In fact, Jesus has so revealed, has so fulfilled the words of the prophets, has given us his word that we can interpret, we can look back, and we can understand precisely what he means, precisely where he exists. In fact, right now, the children at Central are going through the book of Leviticus in the Gospel Project. Right now, your children, if you have children over there, are hearing the Gospel via the book of Leviticus. That's what's happening right now. For your kids. See, we see that. So right here, in this context, there's a rebuke, there's a cure, and there's a blessing. I want us to see that the Bible bears witness to Jesus. First, Jesus rebukes them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? All of these pointers, all of these signs, this is what was to take place. You still don't understand? You're still not seeing the scriptures that in the Old Testament, that all throughout, I'm there, they're pointing to me? But then he gives them the cure. He shares the cure for that rebuke. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You'll come to understand. You'll see it clearly. You'll see it vividly, all that I've accomplished and all that the scriptures have been pointing to. And then he gives them a blessing. It happens in verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So after Jesus has sat with them and met with them, they look at each other, they recognize who Jesus is, and they say, When he, when he was revealing, when he opened all the scriptures to us, were our, were our hearts not burning? See, that is the blessing that comes through understanding that Jesus is in all of Scripture, that all of the Bible bears witness to Jesus. May our hearts burn within us as the Bible is taught, as we preach the gospel through all of Scripture, as we give ourselves to his word and encounter Jesus there. That's 
the blessing. And finally, the second part of the verdict is this. Eternal life is found in Jesus, the Son of God. This is what Jesus wants them to see. He's making these indictments. He's bringing forward these witnesses, for he wants them to see what is truly the verdict. John chapter 20, verse 30 says it this way. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That's the Gospel of John. But these are written, what's contained in the Gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe Jesus, for in Jesus is eternal life. Do not miss the point of John's gospel. Eternal life is found in Jesus, the Son of God. So let's conclude this trial. Here is where the evidence points and here is what we are to do. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God for by believing you may have life in his name. Believe in Jesus and that the whole of scriptures point to Jesus and gospel redemption at the center. Don't miss him. Jesus confronts our unbelief, sin, and rebellion in order that we would come to him for life. May we see Jesus as the grand point of Scripture, and may he be the grand point of our lives. I invite um, our prayer team members to get in some different places in the room. We typically have one up in the balcony, someone towards the back of the room, someone towards the front of the room. We offer this each week um, because we really believe in the power of prayer. As I sit with some of you and have conversations about life, I know some of you are going through some really hard things. There's no shame in getting up and saying to someone, would you pray with me? In James 5, it says the the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. We believe that by gathering with others and praying that God blesses that. So we'd love for you, if there's just something you'd love prayer for, to make use of of those individuals. They love to be available. Um, Also, if there's something convicting in the text and you want... Uh, that to be prayed for you, please feel free to do that. And anything else that may be on your heart, we just want to be available. Love you well. Pray for you. Let me pray right now, and the band's going to lead us in a couple of closing songs. God, thank you for your grace. God, there is so much in this text that convicts my heart. It is amazing how often I find something in the scriptures and I think, wow, how cool, how neat. Oh, I want to share that gem. And bypass that you are, that I need that truth to sink into my heart for my spiritual good, that I might know you more. Lord, may we not miss you even as we pour over the scriptures. Jesus, may we not miss the gospel and being a people who proclaim it, whether it be here at church, whether it be in children's ministry, whether it be in Christian schools, whether it be in our homes, Lord, we do not want to simply teach moralistic, therapeutic deism. We want the gospel to penetrate every part of our lives. For you are our hope. Thank you for your word and that they point us to you so we can know you. We praise you. We submit to you. We love you. And now we respond in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.